Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas, arts editor of the TLS. Thea Lenarduzzi, our usual host, is not back with us yet, so we're very pleased to welcome back Toby Lishtig, our fiction editor, to hold the line. Hello, Toby. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you, Lucy. How are you doing? All right. Thank you very much. You've been, uh, since you're fiction editor, you've been been reading anything interesting lately? I have, as a matter of fact. Um, not, not just fiction as well, but um, yes, no, I've, I've been doing quite a lot of reading. My, my, uh, my book on the go at the moment is the new Richard Powers novel, uh, Bewilderment which is out uh, later next week. Um, and we're actually running a review of it in a, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, and I can exclusively reveal is on the Booker shortlist. It's, it's, it's exclusive at this second, at the time of recording. Unfortunately, by the time this goes out and our listeners will be hearing this, it will no longer be exclusive. But there you go. We can enjoy the thrill of exclusivity <laughs> right heard, now. You heard it here first, Lucy. <laughs> so that's on the Booker shortlist. It's, 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 a, it's a real, I mean, I think Richard Powers is a wonderful novelist. His previous book, The Overstory, um, did extremely well as well. Um, he he's very uh, engaged with science. Uh, all his books have some kind of scientific theme: ecology, neurology, um, uh, and, and and actually, he's a very he's an incredibly good narrative teacher. He is one of those authors who does a huge amount of research. But then, at his best, where's that learning likely? Um, yeah. The new the new novel, Bewilderment, is about this father son relationship and that really is actually at the heart of it it's just this very beautiful um, relationship between a, uh, this guy who's lost his partner and he's bringing up this slightly troubled nine-year-old boy um he's also an astrobiologist and his speciality is life uh or the, the or the potential for life on other planets um and it's it's just it's really really beautifully done do you know if if you had asked me what I was reading, which I'm sure you would have, because you're very polite, <laughs> I'm actually reading the Overstory, like oh. like about five years too late, or you know however many years Never too, too late. late it is. It's just brilliant. Yeah, it, it's I just so this the Overstory is is basically about trees. I mean, generally, also yeah. people, but a lot of but really about trees. trees a lot. And it's wonderful because he manages to do that thing, as you say, talk about quite abstract things and 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 people thinking hard and sometimes reaching moments of transcendence. It's very difficult to write about that without sounding boring or preachy or kind of hand wavy. And I just find it just absolutely gripping. And you keep wanting to tell people about bits that you've read. 
I mean, and he does a really interesting thing with the overstory, doesn't he? Because he sort of, he decenters humanity. It's, you know, suddenly you realise that... I haven't finished it yet. No well, 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 it's, it's, it's <laughs> you know, she, in most novels, humans are really the main part of the story, aren't they? Yeah. And yeah. there's this whole new wave of fiction in, you know, in the, in the, you know, in the, in the era that we currently are living in, in the climate crisis, um, where novelists are actually trying to bring non-human organisms into the kind of narrative, not just as a backdrop, but as, you know, narrative itself. And I think he does that really effectively with the overstory. And I think it, when we look back, we'll, 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 we'll see that as, you know, one of the kind of the, the early lodestars of this new sort of fiction. Um, but I, I massively recommend Bewilderment. I mean, I, I'm not surprised it's been shortlisted for the book, and I think it's a, yeah, it's a worthy contender. Yeah, that sounds terrific. Well, um, we're going to be talking about more books um, coming up on this week's show. What to read this autumn, The Big Hitters, The New Voices, and The Booker Shortlist, and two very different readings of The Stonehouse Affair, the story of the MP who tried to leave it all behind. But first, let's see if this sentence chimes with you at all. As I tried to heave a 10 kilogram power bag over my head, I didn't have the heart to tell the trainer that I rarely lift more than the two volume Oxford English Dictionary. This week in the TLS, we're reviewing books about fitness, how it came to be the industry it is, what it means to us, even what the smell of sweat does. Irina Dumitrescu has gone on this desk-bound journey for us. We didn't make her go to the gym for research, I promise. And she has written brilliantly about it. We're delighted that she's here to talk about it today. Irina, many thanks for joining us. Hello, it's nice to be here. So at the start of your piece, you recount your own experience of joining a gym, which was motivated, you say, partly by an ideology. Can you tell us about that ideology and about your experience at the gym, if you like. You don't, you don't have to. You don't have to reveal anything you don't want to. That's fine. Well, I have to say, I, I actually enjoyed being in the gym because I was so invisible. There were all these men around me who were looking at themselves in the mirror. So I could just w enjoy watching them enjoy themselves. Uh, so that part of it was entertaining. But I think, you know, obviously I went to the gym because I wanted to be trimmer and, and be healthier. But in the back of my head, there was also this feeling that people who exercise regularly and not just when it sort of presents itself are people who are more disciplined, who have more control over their lives. And for them, exercise is a kind of basis for, for success uh, in their career, um, for a happy family life and so on. So there was this, this idea in the, in the back of my head that um, if, I, if I got that part of my life in order, if I could be fit uh, in one in one area, I would be fit in other areas as well. You do hear that, don't you? Especially with, I remember with, this was a while ago, I think it was Condoleezza Rice and somebody did like her usual day and she got up at like 4am and did two hours of weights and then practiced Bach at the piano for an hour or something. And it got the idea just to make everyone feel completely kind of puny and incompetent. I mean, a lot of the the discourse around it has become about improvement and efficiency and competition, hasn't it? Um, well, when, did, when did politicians start actually need to be to be seen jogging? Because that didn't happen sort of 50, 40 years ago, did it? How did that actually start, that whole Condi Rice or pre-Condi Rice thing where you had to, you know, you had to have images of your president or prime minister in their jogging gear running around Central Park? 
Mm. Well, I, I think don't... Ronald Reagan must have been a big part of it. He had this, he publicized his uh, exercise program, which he, which he jokingly referred to as pumping firewood. And he described himself as a sort of outdoorsy man who liked to do, you know, ride horses and, and chop wood and so on and stay fit. So it seems to definitely go back as far as the 80s. And you could almost say the apogee is Arnold Schwarzenegger becoming gov- governor of California, right? That's where f- exercise and politics meet in their in their most ideal form, in their purest form. And now you have yeah, President Putin bare chested, yes, <laughs> on top of huge horses and kind of wrestling animals and things. Um, and the the idea about it being about efficiency and competition and all that. It, 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 according to the author of the first book, you considered it's all Darwin's fault, isn't it? Or a misreading of Darwin. uh, Yogan Matrikat talks about the way that, um, you know, Darwin uh, developed this theory of evolution through fitness. But fitness at the time only meant appropriateness. It, It just meant that a particular species did well in a certain set of conditions at a particular time. And, you know, this is how I studied, how I learned evolutionary biology in university too. There's nothing better about one quality or another. It's just what helps you survive long enough to reproduce. In, in one environment. But fitness started to change in the 19th century and started to mean strength, vigor, right? It started to mean something absolutely good. So Darwin wouldn't say, you know, you have to be buff. <laughs> you just have to be good enough to, to have babies uh, in, in the place where you are. His theory got taken up and kind of twisted a bit in, by, by various 19th century thinkers. And I think also in the popular sphere. It's a wonderfully literal misreading, yeah, because for Darwin it was something like what your wingspan was or whether, you know, you could work out how to crack the nut or something, wasn't it? And it, and it turned into the, the biggest almost, the biggest and the strongest almost. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Matrikat doesn't make it particularly clear where exactly this shift happens, but his point is more that there are various discourses happening in the 19th century that lead to this, right? That um, there's a growing sense that people are responsible for their own self-improvement. There's a focus on education, also education on the ma- of the masses. So uh, this version, this kind of um, adapted version of, of Darwin um, it's really a little more like Lamarckian evolution. Um, this idea that you constantly strive to be better and better and better, that seems to be in the air in the 19th century in, in the West and, and takes over and kind of takes Darwin's ideas and, and uses them to, to strengthen this notion that people have to fight all of the time to improve themselves and to become more competitive. And this urge is is also um, sort of compounded and driven by industry and nations, in fact, isn't it? It's a desire to keep the workforce and also the army fit and productive and ready to fight, as it were. Yes, and one of the things I found most surprising in Machukat's book was how early uh, we have things like uh, work-sponsored exercise programs. So as you're having industry take off, business owners realize that working on a factory line, for example, is not particularly good for people's bodies, right? This kind of repetitive motion. So they start to institute uh, various kinds of health programs on free days, weekends, and so on, to try to keep their workers' bodies fit enough, (laughs) both (laughs) appropriate and strong enough, to do this kind of unnatural uh, repetitive labor. Then in the mid-20th century, you see something similar, but with office work. So there's this kind of vision of the 
middle-aged, uh, generally white man with a kind of with a professional job who sits in his office at a desk all day and becomes overweight, becomes unhealthy, has all kinds of problems. Um, so I hadn't realized to the extent to which these work-sponsored health programs uh, have such a long history. It's, a, it's about a century long. Mm. And it depends how you look at it. You could be cynical and say, well, it's because they're trying to keep everybody healthy so they can do as much work as possible. Or you can say, well, it's for the good of the workers. Martin <laughs> <laughs> Machikat is very cynical, and I have to say I agree with him on this. He, he's, he's really <laughs> relentlessly cynical. But he points out at, uh, at one point that self-care has become like that, too. It's no longer something you do because it's good for you or because you enjoy it or because you care about yourself. But there's almost uh, an expectation that, that people will engage in, in self-care so that they can be in good working shape for, for their jobs, right? Mm. It's, not, it's not just our responsibility to do our jobs, but we have to maintain ourselves like a well-oiled machine in top-notch condition in our spare time so that we can do our jobs all the better. Is, is that a case of mental health as well as physical health then, that kind of self-care idea? Do you think he he talks more about the body, but I think that's true. Yeah, I think there's a sense that we're responsible also for managing stress um, well being. in the workplace. Yeah, <laughs> as yeah. opposed to the workplace not stressing us out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we and we have to remember, of course. I mean, of course, it's good for us to move around. Exercise is good for us, and and the the general idea that we might think is that our ancestors. Um, ran around all the time and that's what we should be doing but the next book which is called Exercised that deals with this idea doesn't it? Yes uh, Daniel Lieberman uh, contrasts the this fantasy of um, of the what he calls the athletic savage with what he considers the reality. And what what was the reality was he wasn't really running around all the time perfectly exercised and incredibly healthy was he? Well, Lieberman both looks at archaeological evidence and uh, studies contemporary hunter-gatherer societies. And what he, uh, the conclusion to which he comes is that people were really not meant to uh, strain themselves all that much. Uh, people do move around a lot. They do a lot of chores, kind of light work, childcare. Um, every now and then, people might break into a run to catch an animal to to eat it, uh, but. Basically, humans have evolved to conserve energy, to conserve calories, because most humans and most of our history have not had a lot of calories at their disposal. So it's actually an evolutionary adaptive advantage um, to be able to save calories for staying alive and again for having sex and reproducing. These are the main uh, the, the main expenditures of energy. Um, we're not necessarily evolved to go running for no reason on a daily basis. And also, that I love the the fact that uh, he he said also they used to spend a lot of time sitting around. You know, there's this awful thing about you mustn't sit down; it'll kill you. But they used to sit around quite a lot, around the fire or whatever. Well, that comes from his his research on hunter gatherer societies, and and his point is that they do sit not as much as people do today in Western civilizations, but maybe as people did a couple of generations ago. So still comparable to to modern sitting. But they sit differently. They don't sit in the chair with the back in one position for eight hours at a stretch, but they fidget, they move around, they might get up to do something. So it's more interrupted active sitting, squatting, right? That's a healthier way to sit. Yes, we should all be squatting around our desks rather than <laughs> don't try this at home. Actually, do try this at home. It's fine. <laughs> try it wherever you want. Um, I feel so much better about fidgeting now, I have to tell you. <laughs> 
Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I love the, the fact you say in your piece, he makes the case for a life filled with frequent light activity rather than Iron Man heroics, for dancing around the kitchen rather than sweating till we drop, which sounds so much nicer and more fun. I have to tell you that Lieberman's book really made me feel so much better about housework. <laughs> I have enjoyed housework so much more since I read that book. <laughs> and frankly, that's kind of miraculous. So so I appreciate it a great deal. Yeah, that, that, that's a good way of looking at it. Um, and the next book, because we, we, we gave you lots of books, didn't we? The next one is about the science of sweat, which is a very human attribute, apparently, and, and how important it is. Can you, can you talk us through that? Well, what I hadn't realized before I read Sarah Everett's book was that most animals don't sweat. Um, you know, dogs pant to keep cool. Um, vultures apparently poop on themselves um, in order to, to cool their bodies down. So it seems that we, we got a good deal with sweat. And again, this is one of these, um, these evolutionary advantages uh, that human beings have, which is that we can cool our own bodies. We're really adaptable to a lot of temperatures. The big, uh, the big takeaway from Everett's book, however, how individual sweat is, right? Every, every person's sweat smells slightly different. It has, every person has their own composition of bacteria in their armpits and on the rest of their body. And so it's, it's like a fingerprint and in fact, fingerprints are uh, traceable because of the sweat on them. And um, it's, it's, um, it's also very important to our daily lives, isn't it? And can change, you said. Does, it, does the, you, the, the, like the, the smell of you and the way you sweat can change through encounters with other people, is that right? On, on the one hand, sweat seems to be identifiable long-term. So um, there are people who can recognize each other's smell after years apart, mothers and children, for example, or, or people who are quite close, siblings. On the other hand, there do seem to be situations where a person's sweat can change. Uh, she does talk to a sweat researcher at one point um, in a very strange but fascinating section, uh, a young man who um, who had never really had much of a body, bodily odor. Um, and then he had, a, he had sex with a woman and his he began to stink from then on. He, he basically started to smell really, really, really bad. And he, he started looking into um, using sort of sweat transplants to, or bacterial transplants to change the smell of people's sweat. And he used an old t-shirt um, that he had that hadn't been washed to kind of Reimpregnate his body with his old bacteria and and return to not smelling at all, uh, but but the jury seemed to be out on whether that's something that's really possible to change the the smell of your sweat. That seems to be research that's ongoing. Right. Okay. Okay. And and meanwhile, the lesson is don't take lessons from vultures on because uh, <laughs> that's that's the most gross way, as far as we can tell. Well, there is another lesson, which is actually smell people, right? I think the part mm. of the point is that we don't smell people very much because in late 19th and 20th century, right, even as, as fitness was taking off, um, sweat was losing out. It became it became obnoxious to to smell like sweat, at least in certain places. Um, and so we often don't really encounter each other's real smells because we, we encounter perfume and cologne and deodorants and things like that, but we don't smell one another. And that's a very basic form of communication 
uh, sweat, which we're which we're missing out on in our relationships with each other. Mm. Okay, so the other take home is don't don't, don't wash, wash less. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, no deodorant. <laughs> Sit around and don't wash. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Uh, and the, the last book that you reviewed for us is The Secret to Superhuman Strength by Alison Bechtel, the gra- graphic novelist. Uh, and incidentally, she's the originator of the Bechtel test uh, for films, isn't she? For which great praise to her, though I did learn today it was the idea of her friend, Liz Wallace, who she gives full credit for. Anyway, sorry, that's a digression. What is Alison Bechtel's attitude towards strength and fitness? Bechtel is really interesting because she shows the tension. On the one hand, she tells the story of her life through her different obsessions with um, with movement, with jogging, biking, skiing, karate, um, and and I'm sure I've missed a few uh, yoga, of course. Uh, so she's someone who's who's been drawn to physical activities throughout her whole life, and yet she's really aware of the. The more ominous side of it, she knows about the fascist history of of idealizing certain kinds of uh, fit bodies, uh, and she she shows herself in a way losing control in her attempt to gain control over herself. So she becomes a workaholic. She drinks a bit too much and so on, smokes a little too much pot, uh, and also torments herself with with exercise as a way almost of not dealing with her life or with her grief or with human relationships. At the same time, there are also these moments of transcendence in in the book where she will be in nature and um, and hit a kind of flow and, and feel at one with the universe. Um, so, so Vector really shows both sides of, of movement, the, the beautiful and and the extra disciplinary there's also she says doesn't she that she at one point she she's like i'm a feminist and and i'm i'm totally against body fascism you know and the way that people have kind of insisted that women look and yet she still finds herself doing it well i think what's at the core of her desire for fitness at least the way she describes it in the book is almost a kind of feeling that fitness will will give you immortality Right. And, mm. and that if you're not disciplined, you don't deserve to live. So there's something really um, I'm using the word wrong, but kind of existential about it. And, you know, in the colloquial sense that um, I, you know, run or die, <laughs> either you're a good person who's um, who has self-control and, and self-discipline. And therefore you can um, you have a right to to be among others and to and to continue to exist. Um, or you're just going to disappear somehow. I think that's what it is. It's about a fear of death, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And does she, has her attitude changed by the end of it? Oh, that's not the point. She's just showing how she's been feeling about it. I think by, by the end, she becomes a little more relaxed and she she can focus a, a bit more on the, on the beautiful parts of it. Um, but she still presents it as a struggle, right? It's never, it's never something that's quite settled, but uh, it's this kind of, modern tension what do you, what do i do with my body what do i do with myself how do i relate to the society around me and the demands that they make on me um and finally irina i wondered if you could just share with us the ending to your piece because it seemed to me a source um of both relief and delight the last couple of sentences if you've got them there yes we did not evolve to run on treadmills like lonely hamsters but we have always enjoyed moving ecstatically in groups, touching transcendence through hours of sweaty exertion. 
Had I known this when I approached the gym doors, I would have turned around and gone to a nightclub instead. There we go. That's the other. <laughs> that's the other. That's the other take home. <laughs> I mean, if you want to go to the gym, of course, if you have a nice time there, splendid. Otherwise, dance around a bit. <laughs> I Absolutely. Think I may, I think you can, and you can do that while dusting as well. It doesn't have to be in a nightclub. <laughs> I think I'm pushing this very hard because I'm very receptive to that idea. Others may <laughs> say, "No, I want to run my marathon." <laughs> well, actually, so so just I don't know. If, so Lieberman actually suggests that um, so people who run uh, very long distances without training for them, you know, the, the hunter-gatherer groups who who do this don't necessarily go out, you know, doing half marathons just for fun. Uh, he he suggests that dancing is how they train. So all night dancing in groups is part of how they keep their physical stamina up. But it's fun. It's a fun way of training. Well, there you go. That's how you do both. Wonderful. And Irina Dimitrescu, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Still to come on the show, what to read this autumn, we provide an ad hoc guide. You're welcome. And we revisit the strange story of the disappearing John Stonehouse. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can follow this podcast wherever you normally get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Since we've got the fiction editor here this week, I thought I'd pick his brains for what we've got to look forward to this autumn. Toby, um, we talked about the Booker shortlist earlier and we're going um, we're gonna to dig into it a bit more, aren't we? We are indeed, and it's not just with me, because um, I'm delighted to say that our very own, if we can call her our very own, Alex Clark um, is joining us now. Now, Alex was originally here just to talk about our next item, but she is an expert on Booker shortlists, and <laughs> she's going <laughs> to she's gonna pick through it with me now, I think. So, Splendid. Two experts for the price of one. That's you wonderful. You may indeed call me your very own. Oh, oh good. Delighted to yeah, hear that. If not yours and Lucy's. To do with as you will. Um, yes, I don't know about expert though, but let's have a go. Okay, so I've got. I'm going to quickly read out the six books um, for listeners who don't already know. So there's uh, Anuk Arad Pragasam's A Passage North, uh, which is set in Sri Lanka during the Civil War. Damon Galgut's The Promise which is set in South Africa from the sort of end of the apartheid era up to the present day. Patricia Lockwood's No One Is Talking About This, um, the, the this being social media and various other currents coursing through it. Uh, Nadifa Mohammed's The Fortune Men, uh, which involves the case of a man executed in Wales in the 1950s. Richard Powers's Bewilderment, which we did discuss earlier in the show, and Maggie Shipshead's Great Circle, which is partly set, I think, in the 50s and partly in the present day, and uh, it reflects on, amongst many other things, the great age of aviation. So, Alex, I am pretty excited by this list. In fact, I think it's I think it's one of my favourite shortlists in recent years. I mean, there's no Ishiguru, no Cusk. A couple of people might uh, raise eyebrows at those omissions, but I think there are six really powerful novels here. What, what do you think? Do you agree or do you dissent? No, I agree. That's not going to make for a very good listening, is um. it? I do. I, no, <laughs> Thank I, you for joining I, us, Alex. The <laughs> end. Bye-bye <laughs> now. Stay Any omissions that you're very cross about? Um, not... Not really. I mean, I did really love Light Perpetual by Francis Spofford. Yes. Which yes. was on the long list. And I did love the Cusk and I did love the Ishiguro. Hmm. So, um, you know, yes, there are some things that you perhaps rather... Oh, gosh, now I think of it, I loved Sanjeev Sapota's um, China Room as well. It was, it was a really good long list, wasn't it? I think it, it was, was the best, really best long list in a decade and for me. Isn't it amazing that, it, it? you know, we're always talking about short lists of various kinds as, as great sort of introducers, as great reading lists for people. And they really 
they really are. And I think this one is huge. I mean, there's loads of writers here. Although there's only one debut, there's uh, Patricia Lockwood's the only debut novel, but there's several sort of second and third time novelists on here whose work I'm just not really very aware of. I mean, I haven't read Maggie Shipstead's uh, first novel, Seating Arrangements, which people seem to adore, people who have read it. So, you know, I, I suppose it's really... Um, bewilderment and the promise the Galgut and the powers are that they are the most sort of prolific they're the most um, historied writers. I do actually think um, for me the pick of the crop is the Damon Galgut Um, I read it a few weeks ago and I just think it is totally brilliant and beautiful and does sort of family drama against changing political backdrop so cleverly and so engrossingly Um, so I think that's that's my one Do do you have a pick do you think? Well, I don't know if I have a pick to win. I mean, I did because I think it's actually quite a sort of unreadable shortlist in in that terms. Although I do, I do think you're right. Unreadable in a, in a in a mean as an in inscrutable. As in inscrutable. I mean, I, you know, as we know, it's always a complete you're on a hiding to nothing. I mean, I'm still dizzy with delight that Piranesi, uh, Susanna Clark's book, won the Women's Prize for Fiction because yes. I, I hoped it would. I. Th- thought it might and then I was delighted that it did and rarely do those three things come together uh, for me but um, I do think the promise the Damon Galgut is in with a really you know strong shout I also think Richard Powers is because there's an awful lot of themes that cross this list aren't they I mean I think it's kind of a list of the times in a way because although there are things that are sort of very historically and geographically specific it's there's a lot of loss and trauma on this list which makes it sound like one great big sort of tear fest and it's it's not but I mean it is really concerned with these kind of vast upheavals and how they play out in people's very specific family stories isn't it tech might be a sort of tech and the future as well are in there as well as the past is that right is that fair or yeah, not really? certainly the Lockwoods that's the sort of more the present and the powers which is set I'm reading at the moment as we were talking about it earlier it's set um sort of a few years into the future climate change has got even worse and the kind of political backdrop in America has got even more toxic and authoritarian and it's also about the stars and astrobiology and and future life mm. and all the rest of it so yeah that's that, that, that looks in all directions I'd say I would say the Lockwood which you're you're right Lucy has got this kind of real sort of edge of modernity and and kind of madness the madness of social media in it but I don't know if I've ever read a book that's so clearly in two halves and that in a way if you haven't read it I mean it's a very easy book to spoiler, even though it isn't. It isn't a thriller, and it doesn't have suspense in that in that sense. But it just changes. The first half is totally about internet discourse and social media discourse and what it's doing to us and celebrity. And then the second half is completely different. And I kind of think I should say no more than that, really. Okay, well, we won't say any more about that. Uh, And now I think we will move from our fiction and our made up stories to a real story. Yes, indeed, Lucy, we do have a real story to discuss now. Um, From Alistair Crowley to Reginald Perrin, the pseudo-suicide or faked death has long been a source of public fascination. Who among us, when the chips are down, has not wistfully imagined concocting a story involving a flimsy vessel, an abandoned briefcase, a forged passport, and a hastily written note before heading off to the South Pacific to start life afresh. 
Well, perhaps that's just me. But it isn't just me. Listeners of a certain vintage will remember the Stonehouse affair when the Labour MP for Warsaw North and former cabinet minister John Stonehouse disappeared while swimming from a private beach in Miami. Had he drowned at sea? Had he been eaten by a shark? Weeks passed while his wife and three children back in London began adjusting to the tragic news. Then Stonehouse was spotted in Australia, living under an alias. It was a media sensation. Stonehouse, it seems, had committed fraud, theft and much else besides. Extradition, arrest and a trial ensued while Britain watched on agog. Two new books about John Stonehouse have recently been published and Alex Clark has written a magnificent review of them in this week's TLS. Hello again, Alex. And am I right in saying um, that this story had been something of an abiding interest of yours um, sort of long before you were approached with this commission? Well, I think it probably goes goes to what you're saying uh, in, in the intro to that, that I do have this sort of fascination with faked deaths. But I think actually it's specifically that it really is the first thing I remember being on the telly, the telly news. I just can remember it very, very vividly. And I think that's just kind of random in some ways. I imagine my parents were very, very interested in it. My dad absolutely loved a fake sort of a disappearance type thing. He also loved Donald Crowhurst, the sailor who, who sort of pretended to be going around the world or whatever he was doing. And I suppose it just lodged in, in my mind. Do you remember everyone talking about it when you were yeah. little? Do you remember I mean, sort of I being was, a... I was really quite little. I mean, you know. Uh, yes, you but I should say this is the, it's the early seventies, isn't it? Yeah, I was about kind of six, I guess, when this happened, six or seven, and I just suppose I saw it on the news, and I just remember because it was such a kind of breathless scandal, and of course that's part of the reason that it's endured. It's part of the fact that the trial, you know, his subsequent trial, which I've found out obviously a lot more by reading these two books than I was aware of at the time or even subsequently, was such a huge thing. You know, one of those real sort of tabloid, endless generation of news stories, um, partly because uh, he was put on trial when he was finally brought back to the UK after an awful lot of wrangling because he, he sort of was going to go before Parliament and then he wasn't and he was going to be extradited and then he wasn't. Um, there were kind of wrangles between governments. There were there were ways that he could, um, that Parliament in a sense, because he'd been a cabinet minister in, in Wilson's government, Parliament could kind of almost save face and come to terms with having this absolute renegade in their ranks. So there's this long process. He finally gets back to Britain and then he's put on trial basically for fraud. Um, not the sort of fraud of disappearance, but the kind of financial miasma that surrounded him. Well, yeah, let's, so let's row back a bit. Who, who was this man and what, what, why did he try to fake his death? What was he running away from? He was, well, contentious. <laughs> <laughs> he was Labour and Cooperative MP for Walsall North. He'd been an MP for some time. I mean, he'd had some distinction. He was um, Postmaster General before it was, and then he worked as, as I think, Post Office Minister or Post Office and Communications and sort of revamped uh, title. I mean, he'd, he'd sort of fallen from that kind of front bench role, largely sort of because the Labour government had, had 
gone out of power. Um, but also he'd had an awful lot of suspicion that he was a, a, a Czech spy, uh, had, had whirled around him for some time. Was this reported um, in the papers? Were, were the papers talking about that? Was it sort of all kind of off the record? There is an awful lot that is off the record, actually that remains off the record, but um, but indeed it was kind of paper talk a lot, a lot of it too. It I mean, seems, that, so, I'm sorry to butt in, but it seems extraordinary that he carried on being an MP at all if they thought he was a Czech spy. Were they just like, oh, he might be, but anyway, on you go. I really... Well, I really think there was kind of, you know, there, he had certain links, certain links can be made, but, you know, he was, you know, I guess kind of, you know, normal that he would have met people in different governments and different businessmen, etc. And he obviously denied everything at this stage. Or Absolutely. Fact, also- well, and, 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 you know, and his daughter, who's written one of these books, absolutely continues to deny it, you know, to this to this day he did prove he did prove himself to be quite hapless though didn't he because he you know he faked his death and then he was almost immediately discovered um and i just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that like how, how did he firstly how did he get from the miami beach to australia and secondly how was it that he you know this is pre-internet well, <laughs> I mean, it was probably a bit easier to just to disappear in those days well, you know, as, as i was reading about this and the details of it i mean i don't know if i quite understood it myself because it seemed to me that well for a start he did a sort of trial run he flew to miami and thought about faking his death and did a little bit of sort of scoping out the ground then lost his nerve and flew back to london and then a bit later a few weeks later he did the same thing again except this time he went through with it and he'd gone off basically to try various kind of import export businesses uh and financial businesses and they were all in kind of varying degrees of of trouble he went off with an associate to to meet people who might be able to help him out of that trouble and off he says to says to the guy I'm going to go for a swim see you for a drink for dinner and never appears having stowed his his clothes in a cabana and made a big sort of fuss of saying I'm going to leave my clothes here to a a cabana attendant but actually I think he had some hidden somewhere behind a rock in a phone booth I forget somewhere some clean fresh clothes and off he went but what became extraordinary to me that he crisscrosses I mean the, the sort of flights that he takes in in a world where you couldn't just book a flight on your app really quickly but he seemed to take immense numbers of flights to finally uh, get to Australia. It's amazing to me that nobody recognised him, but they didn't. Partly, it was because Lord Lucan had also just gone missing, so everyone was looking for him. So perhaps <laughs> Stonehouse kind of faded a bit into the background. But, I mean, as in all these things, you know, people, it's the simplest, simplest things. I don't think he quite realised, or the way I read it, he hadn't quite realised how small town, in a way, Melbourne in in the 70s was so there he was going setting up his new bank accounts in fake names and he kind of forget forgot that basically one bank bit of bank personnel would say to another one up the road over their sandwich at lunch you know we had a funny guy in here this morning he did a fake moustache you know yeah exactly you know he seemed very sort of unclear about his his documentation and he was very shifty but he had an awful lot of money uh, so this was how it came out the fact that he tried to open his new bank accounts in his new names and he had a, a number of sort of fake names um all on the same morning in the same street well that that, that doesn't seem um terribly efficient it's not the work of a of a master criminal is it but of course this was again you know one of the things that he he then came up with in his defense was that he'd uh, essentially kind of suffered a complete 
psychiatric breakdown. In fact, mm. he, he, you know, he he consulted various um, experts at the time, and one of whom gave him this phrase that sort of came up again and again in his defense of psychiatric suicide, that he'd become sort of essentially split into, well, not just two, but several people, but one of them was John Stonehouse, and he was sort of dead. He had to kill him. Uh, John Stonehouse, he'd done all the bad things. He'd done all the bad things. <laughs> he was dead. Done. Yes, exactly. But, you know, he'd, and, and also it had been done to him. You know, he had become increasingly beleaguered and depressed by the hypocrisy of public life, by the canter politicians, by the fact that, you know, you had friends one minute who were your foes the next by the sort of hideous cut and thrust of party politics. And this had all been a kind of intolerable psychiatric strain. And he had therefore split off John Stonehouse. He'd killed him and he'd emerged reborn. One of the sort of defences that has been put forward is that, you know, well, he was essentially kind of stealing from himself. Um, You know, he was sort of plundering his own bank accounts. So what had he, what crime had he actually committed? But judge and jury took a very dim view of that. I mean, I don't think it was helped by the fact that he had a defence team and basically sacked them all as as well, mavericks, we might kindly say, often do, don't they? They think they can take the stand themselves and weave this wonderful tale of rhetoric and and justice, and it didn't quite work. So yes, he defended himself. He gave, I found this a fascinating detail, he gave a dock statement, uh, which is a sworn statement that you give from the dock, sort of in your defence. And so irritated, was the judge at this, this, because he just went on and on, can you imagine? So irritated was the judge that he essentially, in subsequent years, was part of the reform of that law that meant you just couldn't do that anymore. It's as if he just, <laughs> right, that is enough. I'm actually changing the whole judicial system now. We can't put up with this nonsense any longer. Gosh. Can I um, ask about the, um, the, the, the sort of personal aspects of it, which was that mm. he had left a family behind... But uh, he he then set up with someone else, didn't he? When he well, he'd been well, he'd when he been was reborn, as it were. Affair, exactly, he'd been having an affair with his his secretary Sheila Buckley, um, who he subsequently went on to marry, and they had a son. And you know, there was a sort of long lasting, real love affair between them, and and marriage between them. But yes, he uh, he had left his his wife their two daughters and their son how old were the children at this stage uh, they were sort of teens i mean the the two the you know the the sort of young adults um his daughters were kind of grown up and he had the the younger son um but you know they were by no means grown up julia stonehouse's book is a sort of you know a howl of kind of exculpation in a way. I mean, she mounts this absolutely forensic defense of her of her father. And I mean, impressively so. There's an awful lot of, of sort of research in it. Um, and at the end of it, you kind of think, well, supposing every bit of this is true, the question that remains is what is it like to be a child whose father fakes their own death? Does she address that at all? Not really, not in a kind of, you know, in in any sort of, with any kind of emotional depth. And I I mean, I left that book thinking, is it simply too painful to think that my father could have allowed me to continue to believe that he was dead? And similarly, the the other book by Julian Stone is so, so different. I mean, it's written in a much kind of 
racier uh, style in a way he himself is is a lawyer and his father you know who was Stonehouse's nephew had been sort of part of of the defense team at, at various points and part of his you know company schemes too and I think reading between the lines and there is a, a sort of afterward in which Julian Stonehouse says you know I've, I came to see my father very sympathetically and we've not always had an easy relationship and you think there is clearly sort of rage at what this person, Stonehouse, kind of perpetrated on the wider family. The kind we of know if Julian Hayes and Stonehouse. Julia Stonehouse talk to each other, and are they, are they mentioned in each other's books, or is it? Do these seem uh, no? I, I, I believe uh, I believe they they do not. I think I think there have been interviews around and subsequent to publication where they've kind of alluded to sort of sending each other, you know, notifications that they were writing books. <laughs> But no, but very little else. And I mean, this this goes against the sort of uh, kind of conjuring of, of of much larger family gatherings in both their childhoods, where they were supposed to be a kind of great big happy family. With with Stonehouse, in a way, not exactly at the centre of that, but certainly this kind of provider of of large homes and largesse and sort of magical childhood times. Um, and then, of course, this you know they all just disappeared and there is that thing that, that just came to me you know as I was reading specifically I suppose Julian Hayes account of that idea of a person who puts themselves at the absolute center of the family and their actions make them the person that everyone talks about and thinks about and worry about and be angry at and what then happens to everybody on the periphery um and I found that kind of fascinating actually. it is fascinating you know 50 years later yes. it's still haunting the family you know they're still Absolutely. raking over this and it's it's really really interesting um you you just said that Julia Stonehouse is version sort of posits him um, in your quote as an honourable man brought low by intolerable pressures um, and obviously Julian Hayes's book um, gives a far more warts and all accounts I guess what which one did you buy which which Stonehouse do you come away with from reading these two books um I mean I think I think I think it's very very hard to read this story and believe the kind of totally innocent version but I think you come away, you know, with an idea of somebody as a chancer, really. Um, I have to say, I think I thought, wow, he's, you know, he was a kind of self-mythologizer. And um, then it all got too much. And I think in a way it's, you know, I can buy his daughter's version of him as having had a kind of breakdown. But I think a breakdown that essentially meant that he just didn't really know what he was doing is, is a bit harder to buy because of the, the the you know the extraordinary lengths that he went to to create this sort of you know the lies and deceit and I think one of the things that that enormously went against him in the trial certainly in terms of public opinion and what absolutely does uh in terms of, of reading these accounts now is that when he was setting up these these two fake identities and he'd done loads of prep work uh you know getting passports and the like because of course he had to have those details to do his sort of international travel but he went to constituents two women whose husbands had died and he'd he'd found out from sort of local information actually not by uh by totally legit means then I don't think and he, he went to them and basically said 
don't worry, I'm going to get some charitable help for you. I just need um, I need to take away various papers belonging to your dead husbands. And so this sort of plundering of dead people's identities, you know, doesn't doesn't really go into the kind of, you know, oh, it all became too much for me. But it's so interesting that, you know, we became so at the same time there was Lucan, of course, Lucan had done something far, far, far worse. And then what pops up on our tellies not very far after is Reggie Perrin, which had initially been knocked back by the BBC for, for not being topical or believable. But of course, Reginald Perrin is, is a kind of tremendously benign version of all these other disappearers, isn't he? Because he really does just sort of mm. have enough and do, apart from that, he does briefly allow his loved ones to think he's he's dead um he has a much more sort of utopian vision of of how he wants his new life to be i think we're gonna have to disappear now aren't we um because uh we're running out of time but in a completely straightforward and open straightforward and open manner and we not by leaving a (laughs) pile of clothes on the beach because that really i don't think i don't know if anybody ever did that again i mean i know of course you know in latter years there's been sort of you know the famous canoe man. Canoeist John Darwin, who I did want to talk to you about, but uh, yeah, I think you know. Yeah, uh, but I think time. everybody thinks, well, if I am going to fake my own disappearance, the last thing I should do is just neatly fold a pile of clothes <laughs> because that has been done uh, as it were to death. Well, we are all fully clothed, um, and nonetheless, we we, we will. I think we you will. shouldn't need to point that out, Toby. I think we should take that as a given. It's, it's worth saying. Also, we're passing through um, each other. You well, know, I'm a, I'm a, down a lot down the line. You have no idea. Um, it's been so brilliant talking to you, Alex. Thank you very much indeed Absolute for coming pleasure. on. Thank you very much. Goodbye. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Irina Dumitrescu and Alex Clark. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Lee Meyer. We'll be back next week, but for now, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.